0: That brings us to chapter 21 verse 1 when the Canaanite king of Arad who lived in the Degev heard that Israel was approaching along the road of Hatharam he fought against Israel and took some of the prisoners so Israel made a vow to Yahweh and said if you will indeed deliver this people into our own hands then we will utterly destroy their cities and Yahweh listened to their voice of Israel and delivered up the Canaanites and utterly destroyed them in their cities so the name of that place was called This is a huge turning point for Israel, because Israel hasn't been seeing many victories, hardly any victories. The last victory that we saw for Israel was a year, well, 39 years ago, when they defeated the Amalekites under Joshua's leadership. Other than that, we haven't seen much. Even just here recently, about 38 years ago, they got attacked by these same people when they tried to take the Promised Land without God's guidance, without God's permission, because of the judgment on their lack of faith, and they got clobbered. Now they're going against almost the same group of people, and this time they're having victory. And one of the things that God is trying to emphasize here is that their ability to defeat or not be defeat, to defeat is really about their trust in God and God being with them. And so just 38 years ago, in the same place, they couldn't have victory because God said, I'm not with you. And now they're having victory against God because he's with them. And this shows a huge contrast between what you can do with God and what you can't do when God is not with you. And this is a real emphasis on their faith. And so we're coming to a turning point where, yes, we're going to still have disobedience because that's going to be the very next paragraph. But the, the generation who has had very little faith in God is beginning to die out so significantly that they are not the majority anymore. And the majority are now becoming the younger faithful generation, which means we're going to start seeing this transition where we've been having mostly disobedience and defeats with a few moments of victories. Now we're transitioning to we're going to mostly have victories with a few moments of disobedience and defeats because that generational um, dominance is beginning to shift as the most of the people are dying off. And so we have a couple more instances of rebellion before we really go downhill or go on, um, rise up in a new victorious generation. So that brings us to chapter 21, verse 6. And this is a strange event. Then they traveled from Mount Hor by the road of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. But the peoples became impatient um, along the way. And the people spoke against God and Moses. Why have you brought us up from Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no bread or water, and we have detested this worthless food. They're probably blaming God now because they're having to go way further east than they ever had to. Now, I don't know exactly what they're thinking, but being a human and knowing what humans are like, I can take a guess of what they're probably thinking is... Why do we have to keep walking all the way past Edom, deeper into the wilderness, when we're supposed to be on our victory journey now to the promised land? We're done with the wilderness, right? Everything's supposed to be better now. And the only thing that's not keeping us from going to the wilderness are these Edomites, and we just had a victory against Arad, which shows that we can defeat them if we wanted to. And in giving total human nature complaining thinking, that's probably maybe some of the things that are going through their mind. But once again, that completely discounts their relationship with Edom, the fact that they're not allowed to attack, that God doesn't allow for vengeance, that there is no reason to attack Edom, and that God can take care of you in the wilderness. And yes, if you are so close to actually enter the promised land, then do you honestly think that God is going to bail on you at this point? And they're completely disregarding that. Logically and circumstantially, it makes total sense they're complaining. But in step with God and by faith, it doesn't make any sense whatsoever. So they complain. So Yahweh sent poisonous snakes among the people, and they bit the people. Many people of Israel died. And the people became came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against Yahweh and against you. Pray to Yahweh that we would take away the snakes from us. So Moses... Prayed for the people. So Moses decides, sorry, God decides to send poison snakes in among them. Okay, some of you, that's like your worst nightmare. Okay, Indiana Jones, I hate snakes. Why? Well, remember the serpent was a symbol of chaos. The serpent is a symbol of chaos and evil and discord and destruction in the ancient world. And so he's basically saying, You want this? Then fine, here you go. Here's chaos. The other thing is that even though Egypt saw the serpent as evil and chaotic, because Ra had to battle the dark serpent every single night and drive it back where the sun wouldn't come up the next day, at the same time, oddly and paradoxically, the serpent was also a symbol of wisdom or protection in Egypt. And so the, the cobra um, was on the crown of the pharaoh, it's called the uberus, um, the, um, the And it was a symbol of protection. And remember why? Why Egypt? Because remember they keep saying life was better in Egypt. And God says, fine, you want Egypt? Here is Egypt. Here is the symbol of Egypt. This is everything that it is. But in reality, all Egypt is is chaos and death. So you want Egypt? You can have Egypt. And he sends Egypt among them. And Egypt begins to destroy them. And it's once again a reminder that life really wasn't that great in Egypt. It was oppression. It was chaos. It was death. Now, they're called fiery serpents um, most likely because their poison was fiery. It probably, I mean, I've never been bitten by a snake, but in today's, there's a YouTube video for everything. And it's poison of a serpent moving through your body is often described as being inflamed and on fire and that kind of stuff. And so it's mostly the poison that's coming through their body and a metaphor that they're fiery serpents. So the people admit, we have sinned. They realize, okay, we don't really want this to happen. And they cry out to God. And Moses decides to intercede on their behalf. And God said to Moses, verse 8, Make a poisonous snake and set it on a pole, and when anyone who is bitten looks at it, and he will live. So Moses made a bronze snake and put it on a pole so that if the snake had bitten someone, when he looked at the bronze snake, he lived. Basically what you have is if the serpent is the serpent in the garden who led them into sin, the serpent is always portrayed as evil and chaos in the Bible. The serpent is the great serpent in the book of Revelation that comes and destroys things. That God in Isaiah 27 verse 1 says that he will destroy the serpent one day why in the world is God having you look at a serpent and placing your faith in the serpent in order to gain healing? And not only that, Jesus then compares himself to the serpent and says, just as the serpent was lifted up, so will the Son of Man be lifted up on that day. You are like, what is going on? The serpent is evil. It's chaos. It'll even be connected to Satan in the Second Testament, not the first. The Second Testament is the ultimate symbol of evil and chaos. And then they're looking at it in faith, and Christ is saying, I am the serpent. Now, is that what's sometimes called the demonic in Yahweh? Well, no, it's not. But how do you know? I mean, I don't want to just say that because I can't accept that. There's got to be truth to it. So here are the ideas. Three ways that what God is trying to do here. And it makes perfect sense. The first one is a little, it's based on the whole book of Leviticus. And so, if you struggle with that in the law, it's a little convoluted. Um, but here's basically what it is Gordon Wyndham, who is a very respected First Testament scholar among all people, um, liberal and conservative. Doesn't mean he's, um, everybody agrees with him, but highly respected for his insights and all that kind of stuff, says this First, the meaning is found in the principles of the sacrificial system. Animals were killed so that humans may live. Blood pollutes people and items, and when spilled, is used to purify. So he's dealing with opposites. He says, look, you're going to die, so you take a live animal and you kill it in order to bring life. Death brings life. That's opposite in the sacrificial system. Blood, when you touch it, defiles you. But when you spill blood in an animal sacrifice and sprinkle on you, it purifies you. So God is often dealing with these opposites, where if you touch blood, it defiles you. But if you sprinkle blood on you after a sacrifice, it purifies you. And it's a very common theme in the book of Leviticus. And so dead animals pollute people. But when the ashes of a dead heifer are burnt and sprinkled in water on everything, then it cleanses. So in each case, there is an inversion of unclean and clean. Those who are bitten by living fiery serpents were cured by the dead serpents with the red hue of the bronze. This fits because the red was a symbol of atonement and purification. So the way he looks at it is that a dead animal gives you life. Blood defiles you, but sacrificial blood purifies you. A dead animal defiles you, but when you take a dead animal and its ashes and put in water and sprinkle on you, it purifies you. So there's something about taking the thing and putting it on you that cancels it out or inverts it or reverses it that God is doing here. Is there a real, magical, supernatural thing to all this? Heck no. And we've talked about that many times. These are all just rituals to teach something. And I think a lot of what their foreshadowing is, that I ultimately idea that Christ is going to become for us what we cannot be, death, sin, sacrifice, all that kind of stuff. And so in the sense that when he does that, we will be able to live. And so the Levitical system is foreshadowing the inversion of that, that where one will die and become sin so that we can live and be righteous. And so the whole sacrificial system of inversion is pointing to Christ. And so once again, God is doing the same thing here, By saying, a fiery poisonous serpent bit you and now is going to kill you. So take a serpent and bronze it, which means it's going to look red, and lift it up and that will now heal you. And so it's more of a ritualistic inversion thing that is going on here. So that's the first thing that God is doing here. Does that make sense? And that one you kind of just have to trust God that that's how it works. Um, there's no scientific principle. You can't test this. You can't go into a laboratory and say, oh, yeah, this totally works. This is all ritual. It's all theology. It's all symbology. And in that sense, it has nothing to do with science. It has nothing to do with the laws of physics or anything. It's theology and symbology. And you just trust that if it's pounded in through the book of Leviticus, then when you see here, there's a definite correlation going on. And so he's, what he's doing is bringing purification. And so, once again, that bronze has a red hue to it. And bronze, we most often know bronze as copper, all that copper piping in our house. Um, That red hue would remind them of purification and spilt blood. The second one is this. When the Israelites made a sacrifice for atonement, there had to be physical contact with the laying on of hands on a sacrificial animal and with a purification offering. Blood was physically sprinkled on the worshiper for the atonement of sins. Without physical contact, the ritual sacrifice of cleansing was ineffective. Times where the people got so big that they couldn't physically touch, they all had to be there and look. So when Aaron is getting anointed and purified as a priest, they all had to stand and they all had to look on him and see it. And so we see the same thing here where physical touch of things that purify you or physically being there and seeing it was absolutely necessary in order to reap the benefits of that purification. So for them to look at it was absolutely necessary because they had to intentionally process exactly what was going on so that they would fully understand why they are being healed. And that's absolutely necessary. Even with Christ's death, it was very public so that everybody could see it, where a lot of times deaths are often seen as private. So later Jesus would refer this symbol, humans dying their sins are saved by the dead body of a man suspended on the cross. When appropriate, Yahweh is healing power by believing in the Son of Man. And so um, that actually physically understanding it and seeing it was important. Now, the third one, this for me is the strongest. I, I, I'm i not saying these are the three, it's this or this or this. I'm saying it's all three of them. But this is the one that really made sense to me. And it's this. And this requires you understanding the culture. Because remember when we were in the um, the tabernacle, the two items in the courtyard, the bronze altar that you would sacrifice the animals on, And the bronze laver that you would dip your hands in to purify yourself, the bronze altar removed your guilt of sin. It condemned you or basically something else died so that you would not have to die so you're no longer legally guilty. Where you go to the bronze altar, uh, watch basin, sorry, it purified you and washed you of your defilement. And so you could be declared not guilty by a judge, but you still committed the crime, therefore you're still defiled where the altar said you're no longer guilty, you don't have to go to jail anymore, or in this case, die. But the bronze on labor or wash basin when you wash yourself actually purified you of your sins so that you were no longer a sinner. Now, remember, none of that literally happened in the First Testament, but it's all foreshadowing the cross of Christ that does not purify you of your sin but removes your legal guilt because he's dying instead of you, but you're still defiled. But his death allows his blood and water to come out, which is the Holy Spirit who comes in you and now begins to purify you so you're no longer a sinner as you become transformed by the renewing of your mind and ultimately the day of our glorification. So those two things were both bronze. And the reason they were bronze is because in the ancient world, bronze is a symbol of judgment. And it was a symbol of judgment because fire is a symbol of judgment. In the ancient world, bronze has the highest melting point of all metals. Today, we have metals that have a higher melting point, but that's because we've manufactured steel and alloys and that kind of stuff, but this is also why, for most of American history, your hot water copper pipes are bronze copper, because if you made them out of gold or silver, you would have water leaks everywhere in your house, and it would be way too expensive. And steel and all that kind of stuff wasn't easy to mass produce back in the early days. And so copper and bronze becomes a symbol of judgment because it can withstand the most heat of any metal in the ancient world. And it was often used to plate things. And so is a symbol of judgment. So what you have now is not lifting a serpent up on a staff for them to look at in faith. Rather, the serpent has been bronzed, which means the serpent has been judged and condemned. And what you're doing is you're looking at it and putting your faith in the fact that God has condemned chaos, that he has condemned Egypt, and he has subdued the chaos that the serpent is a symbol of. No longer is the chaos raging through your camp, taking you down, but now the chaos is dead and subdued. And remember in the book of Genesis, it's exactly how he begins creation account by subduing the chaotic waters. Then he brings life. So now that God has judged, condemned, and subdued evil and chaos, now you can have life. In the same way, Christ becomes that. He becomes our sin, chaos, evil. And he is killed on the cross and he becomes sin and chaos, condemned on our behalf. And when we look at the cross... We're not putting our faith in a dead man. We're putting our faith in a man who became condemned and subdued on our behalf. And so this is why Jesus says, just as the serpent was lifted up to be subdued and condemned and brought life, so I will be lifted up and become sin and condemned and subdued in order to bring life to you. And this is why Jesus would refer to that image as a foreshadowing of that. Does that make sense? It seems really weird and contradictory, but once you understand the culture and once you understand those boring books like Leviticus, it begins to make sense as we go through. And then it becomes a very powerful visual picture of Christ, which means when Christ says something like that to the the, the Jewish people, they should get it. They should have got it. And they should have known that when he's going to die that there's a whole lot more going on there than a powerful political entity crucifying a traitor to the crown. Because Jesus has already been saying, I'm going to die, and here's why. Just like the serpent was lifted up, so will I. And then now all of a sudden he's attached his death to cleansing and purification and priesthood and, and, and in creation itself. And is no longer a traitor just dying on the cross anymore. And that's important. He's setting them up. And there's many, many other cases where he points to that, which means when those disciples see him, they shouldn't be saying like, Peter, no, 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 you're not going to die. That's not going to happen. They should have been getting it. And that's why when you read John's gospel, he says they did not understand what Jesus was saying. But later when they looked back, they were like, oh, now I get it. And he puts a lot of those comments through his gospel and it's like the light bulb goes off when the Holy Spirit comes. And so this is what God is doing here and judges them. Now later, God will tell them to destroy that pole because he doesn't want it to become then, a holy relic, um, but they never do it. It will not be destroyed until Hezekiah comes along like over 700 years later. So, And then when we get to those kings, it will say, in all those years it led Israel astray in idolatry. So they saw it and they put their faith in it, but they failed to destroy it like God wanted them to.